Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are top stories. U.S. officials and lawmakers are urging Israel to step up its efforts to minimize civilian deaths in Gaza. The State Department sets its stance amid growing pressure from Congress. Shocking testimony from eyewitnesses of the Hamas terror attack. Israel's ambassador to the U.N. calls the silence around reports of sexual violence deafening. Support for Israel and Ukraine hangs in the balance as lawmakers squabble about an aid package for the country's worth over $100 billion. A protest in Philadelphia earned a stiff rebuke from Pennsylvania's governor. Hear more about a demonstration the governor called anti-Semitic. An explosion rocks a D.C. suburb house as officers try to execute a search warrant. We have the latest on the developing story. And we look at the Supreme Court in its decision on Purdue Pharma's bankruptcy case. We sit down with the host of NTD Business to unpack the details. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome. Today is Tuesday, December 5th. And you know, Evelyn, I think a central point in the argument of whether or not to support Israel and its war on Hamas is evidence in Senator Bernie Sanders' statement that you can't destroy an entire neighborhood just to take out a single terrorist. Right. I mean, the IDF came out with statements that say that this is not what happens. And also, I mean, it's a long discussion, right? Also, uh, people arguing about moral equivalency and things like that. But um, we want to start off today, um, as touched upon with the Israel-Hamas war, top UN officials are warning of an apocalyptic situation right now in Gaza and saying there is no safe place for civilians to go. The U.S. says while it supports Israel in its war against Hamas, how it defends itself matters. The U.S. State Department said yesterday it's watching Israel's southern offensive closely and has seen improvement. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the concern and Israel's response. State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller said Monday it's not just Israel's intent that matters, it's results. And we are watching very closely and we'll continue to watch very closely before we draw any definitive assessments. Miller says so far Israel's military campaign in southern Gaza looks different than its operations carried out in the north. He says some improvements are targeted evacuations in specific neighborhoods, with UN-supported deconfliction zones where civilians can safely shelter. We do not want to see the same level of civilian casualties. We do not want to see the same level of mass displacement. But Miller says the U.S. does expect to see civilian casualties in Israel's campaign and that sadly it's part of all wars. It is especially going to be true in a war in a crowded urban environment where the opponent, Hamas, is using civilians as human shields and hiding themselves, hiding their fighters, hiding their infrastructure behind civilians. So what we have made clear to Israel is that we expect them to comply with international humanitarian law and do, them, do everything they can to minimize civilian harm. Israel's military confirmed a recent report that two Palestinian civilians have been killed for every one Hamas terrorist during the war. I think that our numbers will um, be corroborated if you compare though that ratio to any other conflict in urban terrain between a military and a terrorist organization using civilians as their human shield and embedded in the civilian population, you will find that that ratio is tremendous, tremendously positive. 
IDF spokesman Daniel Hagari on Monday declared Israel's military was expanding ground operations everywhere in the Gaza Strip to target Hamas centers of gravity. The military spokesman says fighter jets were carrying out significant and very precise strikes based on intelligence. Part of several operations, Hagari says, were executed by combined ground and air forces to eliminate terrorists and their infrastructures. Ground forces are operating in the field. The terrorists come out from the shafts, from the tunnels. The air force forces attack and thus continue to advance with strength assisting strength. Hagari is demanding international organizations like the Red Cross verify the safety of the 137 hostages still being held by Hamas. Eight released Israeli hostages wrote a letter to the International Red Cross on Monday asking for help in securing their release. They asked the organization to visit the captives to provide urgent health status, medical assistance and proof of life. The IDF says it does have intelligence on where hostages are possibly being held and that it's a top priority to get all of them back, either through negotiations or military means. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Israel's Defense Ministry branch, Kogat, is disputing claims from the World Health Organization's Director General. That's over the allegation yesterday that Israel's military forced the WHO to evacuate medical warehouses in southern Gaza within 24 hours. The WHO chief said the warning came from the risk of ground operations putting it out of use. He called on Israel to withdraw the order and to take every possible measure to protect civilians and humanitarian infrastructure. Kogad is the Israeli body that oversees Palestinian civilian affairs. It reacted to the allegation on X by saying it would expect a UN official to be more accurate. Kogat says it did not ask the WHO to evacuate the warehouses and made that clear in writing to relevant UN representatives. And a new report reveals horrific stories of rape and sexual violence during the Hamas terror attacks on October 7th. The UN headquarters in New York held a special session yesterday where witnesses exposed brutal acts against Israeli women. A warning to viewers, many of the descriptions describe gruesome acts and the accounts are very disturbing. Here's the report. On October 7th, Hamas perpetrated rape and sexual violence, exploiting these unforgivable crimes as weapons of war. Nearly two months after the October 7th attacks, the international community is finally beginning to investigate and recognize reports of brutal and inhumane rapes and sexual assaults by Hamas terrorists torturing and terrorizing the people of Israel. For weeks, Israeli police have been collecting eyewitness testimony, video, and forensic evidence detailing countless accounts of rape and sexual assault perpetrated by terrorists on Israeli women and children. And for weeks, there has been very little outcry or condemnation from the international community, including from the United Nations. Sadly, the very international bodies that are supposedly the defenders of all women showed that when it comes to Israelis, indifference is acceptable. To these organizations, Israeli women are not women. The rape of Israelis is not an act of rape. Their silence has been deafening. But Monday, the United Nations held a gathering hosted by Israel, examining sexual and gender-based violence committed during Hamas's attack on Israel. Hamas has denied committing any rapes or sexual assaults. There are exactly no circumstances that justify rape. None. Rape is targeted. 
Rape is terror. Rape is torture. Doesn't just strike fear in the hearts of Israeli women, it strikes fear in the hearts of every woman and girl around the globe. Their bodies are not worth defending. The chief superintendent of the Israeli police read numerous accounts of the atrocities witnessed by survivors and first responders. Everything was an apocalypse of corpses. Girls without any clothes on, without tops, without underwear. People cut in half, butchered. Some were beheaded. There were girls with a broken pelvis due to repetitive rapes. Their legs were spread wide apart in a split. A witness from the rave party testified, we heard girls that were pulled out from the shelters. Girls that shouted, they raped girls, burned them just after that. All the bodies outside were burned. A rescuer that arrived to a house on a kibbutz testified. Inside the shower, there was a body of a cuffed woman. She was without her underwear. The body was in the corner and her hands were tied. Another testimony from the rave party survivor. Women without clothes. Some without the upper body clothes. Some without the lower body clothes, blood over the lower body. Everyone was full of blood. Butchered people. We found a woman's body dumped outside without pants, without underpants, burned, barely any hair left on her. And videos were played from a first responder, a paramedic, and a survivor of the music festival detailing firsthand what they experienced. The two we had were bound by their hands. Their hands were behind their back. There was a body of a woman that had a blood stain on her genitalia. There was a lot of gun wounds there. Shooting was targeted at sexual organs. We saw that a lot. They had a thing with sexual organs, both in women and in men. The women we received they were civilian. We mainly saw either breast amputations or gunshots just to the breast, simply shooting from one side of the breast to the other. They were conscious when they got to us. They laid a woman down, and I understand that he's raping her. He's basically shifting her position, and then they pass her on to another person. Was she alive, the girl they raped? Yes, she was alive. She had long hair. He was pulling her hair. She's not dressed and he cuts her breast. He throws it on the road and they're playing with it. Another survivor of the attack describes seeing a horrific rape at the Nova Music Festival to London's Sunday Times. I saw this beautiful woman with the face of an angel and eight or ten of the fighters beating and raping her. She was screaming, stop it already. I'm going to die anyway from what you're doing. Just kill me. When they finished, they were laughing and the last one shot her in the head. Do we believe the Hamas spokesperson who said that rape is forbidden, therefore it couldn't have possibly happened on October 7th? Or do we believe the women whose bodies tell us 
how they spent the last minutes of their lives. Who are we going to believe? The United Nations doesn't recognize Hamas as a terrorist organization, and the speakers are calling for the UN to do so. Also, the UN hasn't recognized the sexual violence committed on October 7th. The speakers are calling for the United Nations to acknowledge that as well. I think that really, it's hard to watch, definitely, very hard to watch, but it's, I think it's important to be aware of. So it's good that we were able to show a lot of um, uncut versions here. Uh, also, just the unfathomable um, disregard for human life. Yes, I mean, it's very difficult to swallow that pill in the morning, but it is very important to be aware of these kind of things because, as they say, if you don't know history, it's bound to repeat itself. So they're making this known. Because, of course, when October 7th happened, we saw the footage of the paragliders coming down, machine gunning cars mm -hmm. and people. But now, as time goes on, we're able to get out the actual testimony of what happened and these gruesome details yeah. here. These stories, it's really hard to imagine even what is going on in their heads but that brings us to our next story, which is what actually motivates terrorists to commit these acts of terror. A French-Israeli journalist has interviewed dozens of terrorists from Islamic groups. He has some insight into what motivates terrorists and the underlying reasons for conflict in the Middle East. Let's take a look. The crisis in the Middle East is one that spans decades, even centuries the Israel-Hamas conflict being just the latest one. What does Hamas want out of the conflict with Israel? I must add that we don't only fight against occupation. Our goal is to spread Islam to all, everywhere. What do terrorist groups say Islam teaches them to motivate them to commit acts of terrorism? It's written in the Quran. When a martyr blows himself up, it's beautiful. It feels so good. He doesn't feel any pain, only pleasure. And even dead, he wants to do it again and again. I will not feel sorry for any Israeli kid, and I will not regret, even if it is a nursery full of kids. It's enough that I will be a martyr and I will go in front of God. Representing my family, 70 people, my wife, my children, my sisters, and all my friends, 70 people will go to paradise on my merit. This is a big honor for me. Pierre Rehov is a reporter and documentary filmmaker. He's covered conflicts in the Middle East for decades. He's interviewed dozens of Hamas, Islamic Jihad, and Al-Qaeda terrorists. He says the current protests supporting Palestine are products of sleeper cells that have been embedded in America and other countries for years. What we know is that all those uh, parades in America and other places in the world, they are not spontaneous. It was kind of organized. Those are sleep terrorist sleeping cells. They have been there for a long time. You certainly know my friend Steve Emerson, who had been covering for many, many years also. He wrote Jihad in America like 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And this is what is happening. A lot of the mosques are actually are covering within their, their walls uh, small organizations. I'm not talking about all the mosques, obviously, but some of the mosques are just terrorist bases. Rehov talks about who is funding Islamic terrorist propaganda around the world. Is it Iran, Russia, China? It's all of the above, and you forgot the most important, Qatar. Qatar also is involved. Qatar, Russia, China. Very good point. 
but more also you have to understand European Union. They send millions of dollars to left-wing organizations within Israel or within the Palestinian territories. Rahaf pulls no punches when talking about the future of terrorism. We will not be able to stop terrorism until the moment people actually call the things for what they are. If you're looking at, if you're reading the newspapers and if you're watching a lot of mainstream media, they don't even dare calling Hamas a terror organization. Rahav remains hopeful about an end to conflict in the Middle East. My hope is that we expand the Abraham Accords to all of the region of the Saudi, of, including Saudi Arabia. And another hope is that America will wake up, and I think they are actually doing it now. The complex political and religious divide in the Middle East is long-standing. Rahaf says it's necessary to find a global government for Palestinians that is capable of accepting the existence of Israel and making peace with them. And what those terrorist aspirants are actually fed is just all lies because, of course, the Quran forbids suicide, namely in these suicide bombings, and then killing other people. Mm, right. Yeah, it's really just hard to imagine what's going on in their heads, right? Because, as you say, there's also, in a Hamas-controlled Gaza, there is, these kids often grow up with brainwashing, so. Yes. So back to the United States. That's right. Yeah. Um, here in the United States, a massive explosion at a duplex shook a Washington, D.C. suburb on Monday, destroying the home. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the blast, which police say occurred while they were executing a search warrant. Police were on site when the explosion happened, investigating reports of shots fired at the house in Arlington, Virginia. All officers escaped serious injury, but police say they're not sure what happened to the suspect inside the home when it exploded. Officers went to the house at around 5 p.m. after receiving reports of shots fired. They say they later determined the shots came from a flare gun, saying the suspect fired the flare gun approximately 30 to 40 times from inside the house into the surrounding neighborhood. While investigating, police obtained a search warrant for the home. They say they tried to contact the suspect over the telephone and through loudspeakers. But the suspect did not respond and remained barricaded inside the residence. When later attempting to enter the house, they say the suspect fired several rounds inside the home from what is believed to be a firearm. The explosion then occurred just before 8.30 p.m. The blast shot flames and debris into the air. Neighbors say the explosion could be felt and heard from miles away. Officials don't have any evidence that others were in the duplex, but say they can't rule out the possibility. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And coming up, some Democrat lawmakers won't support an aid bill for Israel unless the army takes greater precautions to prevent civilian deaths in Gaza. Tough negotiations in Congress over border security. Will the two parties find common ground to advance Biden's request for supplemental aid? A government relations director gives us some insight. Presidents of Harvard, UPenn, and MIT will appear before a House committee today over their response to a surge in campus anti-Semitism. Find out what the committee chair's first question is going to be. Pennsylvania's governor is calling a recent protest in Philadelphia anti-Semitic. We look at what's behind the governor's statement when we come back.
good to have you back. Some Democratic lawmakers are balking at supporting military aid to Israel. They are demanding Israel reduce civilian deaths in Gaza. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the talks, which center around a nearly $106 billion aid package for Ukraine and Israel. Senator Bernie Sanders and the Democratic senators involved want a change in Israel's military strategy as part of receiving the aid. Sanders says he would support defense systems that protect Israeli citizens from incoming missiles and rocket attacks, but not billions of dollars of what he sees as unconditional military aid. He doesn't support the Netanyahu government continuing what he calls its current offensive military strategy. Israel is at war with Hamas, not with the Palestinian people. Israel cannot bomb an entire neighborhood just to take out one Hamas lieutenant. However, Sanders does acknowledge the challenges Israel faces, saying he recognized that the goal of Hamas is perpetual warfare until Israel is destroyed. Other Democrats, like Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, say passing the bill could determine the trajectory of democracy for years to come adding that the U.S. stands at a historical crossroads. America's national security is on the line around the world, in Europe, in the Middle East, in the Indo-Pacific. Autocrats, dictators are waging war against democracy, against our values, against our way of life. That's why passing this supplemental is so important. Schumer took a procedural step on the Senate floor Monday evening to force a Wednesday vote on the aid bill. But it is unlikely to pass. Meanwhile, some Republican senators are also ready to vote against the Israel-Ukraine aid bill, unless it includes major changes in policy at the U.S. border. Senator Joni Ernst from Iowa says she wants more funding for Ukraine, but not without substantial changes to border policy. Senators will hear a final pitch from an aid beneficiary before voting. Senator Schumer wrote on X on Monday that the Biden administration invited Ukrainian President Zelensky to address senators via secure video as part of their classified briefing. Schumer wrote that senators will be able to hear directly from the Ukrainian president precisely what's at stake in the vote. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And disagreements in Congress over immigration policy are holding up the supplemental aid package. The Biden administration's $14 billion request for border security will probably be adjusted after it passes through both chambers. A bipartisan group of six senators is working on the border funding part. At the party level, Democrats oppose the GOP's efforts to change asylum rules and limit humanitarian parole. The Biden administration is requesting about 2,300 more CBP officers and Border Patrol agents. That's on top of more asylum officers and other officers to process work permits and more. House Republicans want to include Trump-era border policies. That's a non-starter for Senate Democrats. Right now, there is no agreement in either chamber, with Democrats saying they are willing to implement common-sense border security measures. And for an in-depth discussion on the immigration aspect of the supplemental aid package, we hear from Hugh Fike, the Director of Government Relations at the Conservative Partnership Institute. Hugh, thank you so much for your time today. The GOP wants to limit parole, as we mentioned, and just make it so that it's only used under rare circumstances and shorten the amount of time from one year, from two years to one. So why are Democrats opposed to this? 
Let's see. I don't think your audio is coming in, Hugh. Maybe we'll be able oh, to. Oh, I'm sorry. Us. There we go. Yeah. You're so they've, they've limited or they want to limit the use of parole because of uh, they love the administrative flexibility. And that's what they've been using to admit people into the country. So it really breaks down to they don't like to change the, the, the current system that exists. And I think it raises a good point in that uh, conservatives or those in, you know, debating or negotiating immigration policies in the Senate should be very careful about what they're doing, not to weaken uh, or get, provide more administrative flexibility uh, under current law. So is Speaker Johnson trying to put these HR2 provisions, these Trump era border policies in there, is that a political move given that there's no chance it's gonna pass in the Senate or is he trying to make a statement there? Well, I think what he's doing is, uh, is the right thing and he's doing it because he knows that's a, that's a choke point for many on the right and the left. And so in order to extract p potential greater outcomes with the Ukraine aid or um, you know, additional policies, that he knows that he needs to stand firm on on this policy. I also think he's making the point that if if the House passed HR two, they're not going to want to move to the left on the on the bill, and they're not going to want to show their hand and say this wasn't a real exercise. This was in fact just a just a policy exercise that we did that that's fake. And so they want to stick with it, and they want to make sure that this is the negotiating point going forward. Well, thanks for clarifying that. Now, there's a major disagreement over the asylum rules, and that just centers on the change of language. Right now, you have to say that you have a significant possibility of facing persecution in your home country in order to claim asylum. But they want to make it so that it's more likely than not that you will. So first, how significant is that change of wording, and is that a reasonable change to make? Well, yeah, you have to demonstrate as you come across the, the border that if you're an immigrant, that you have a credible fear in your home country, that you're gonna be under some sort of persecution. And making changes to that in, uh, in a liberal direction is not great because as you've seen, they've been able to use this to wide flexibility to admit millions of people into this country. Conservatives for a long time have been saying we need to tighten credible fear standards in the asylum process because that process is done under an interview. And so if you're providing more flexibility to those that are doing the interview, you're giving them a greater chance to, to leapfrog current law. So again, trying to loosen or, or make these laws with more administrative flexibility isn't a good idea. And in fact, for a long time, conservatives have been trying to move this ball further to the right to tighten these uh, standards and to tighten the process to make sure that those that aren't subject to a credible fear are not getting admitted into the country. And it is important for the U.S. to provide asylum as it is part of international law. It's just it needs to be done right in order to prevent a backlog for people that actually do have legitimate claims being second to those who are without those. Last question here, Hugh. Do you think that if this actually passes, I mean, this is a thousand more CBP officers and so on. I mean, on a given day, there's about 20,000 border agents already on the line. Do you think that it's necessary for this aid package to go through to secure the border? Or is it just simply that the laws and the actual enforcement be actually applied the way that it is right now? Well, you know, I, I was just recently a chief of staff for a congressman from South Texas. Our, our border was about two hours from the from the Mexico border. And, you know, we had a great number of uh, people coming through our district. So this issue has been uh, on the front burner for me for a long time. And the folks down on the border, the CBP agents, the ICE agents, um, the, the ERO agents, those doing the hard work of identifying and trying to weed out those who shouldn't be here um, are being turned into administrative processing agents. They're not actually 
um, you know, on the border doing the thing that they signed up to do. And so while adding more agents is great, it's not actually what's going to fix the problem if they're just processing people. What they need to do is give them the ability and the tools to turn people around at the border or to deport people when it's necessary, not just adding resources or giving them more money. Yes, they are strapped and they need more money, but that can't be the only solution. What they need to have is policy changes that are going to make it easier for them to do their job on the border. Well, thank you for weighing in on this. Hugh Fike, the Director of Government Relations at the Conservative Partnership Institute. Thank you. And pro-Palestinians are boycotting Israeli-owned businesses in Philadelphia, and the White House and governor are calling a related protest anti-Semitic. Here's a closer look at the incident and others stemming from the Middle East conflict. On Sunday night, pro-Palestinian protesters marched through the streets of Philadelphia. At one point, stopping at the Jewish-owned restaurant Goldie and chanting. Goldie, which serves primarily falafel sandwiches, is owned by a pair of James Beard Award-winning restaurant owners who are Jewish and specialize in Israeli food. The witness who provided this video told CNN the protesters only stayed for about five minutes before moving on through the city. The larger planned protest ultimately marched across nearly 20 city blocks. There was no apparent damage at Goldie, and police did not say whether there were any reports of vandalism at the restaurant. However, local, state, and federal leaders quickly and forcefully condemned the demonstration at this Jewish business as anti-Semitic. What we saw last night was not peaceful protest. What we saw last night, in my opinion, was blatant anti-Semitism. The White House releasing a statement Monday reading in part, it is anti-Semitic and completely unjustifiable to target restaurants that serve Israeli food over disagreements with Israeli policy. This behavior reveals the kind of cruel and senseless double standard that is a calling card of anti-Semitism. This latest incident, just one of many recently charged moments across the country. In Williamsburg, Virginia, a festival organizer came under criticism Sunday after a Jewish organization said an upcoming menorah lighting was canceled because the event, quote, did not want to appear to choose sides in the Israel-Hamas conflict. The festival organizers said the lighting was never officially scheduled and the event has never had any religious affiliations. Back in Philadelphia, Goldie was busy for the lunch rush Monday as many went out of their way to support the local Jewish business. It actually brought me almost to tears when I was standing in line and seeing how people kept coming in and coming in and, and how backed up they were, really. It was beautiful. Three university presidents will face scrutiny about campus anti-Semitism in a House hearing today. The leaders of Harvard, MIT, and UPenn are likely to be grilled on their response to a surge of anti-Semitism. House Education Committee Chair Virginia Fox says she's looking to hold the campus leaders accountable. Fox accuses the administrators of largely standing by and, in her words, allowing horrific rhetoric to fester and grow. Fox says her first question to the school's presidents will be when they are going to get a spine. The congresswoman says she wants to know when they will start condemning terrorism and take measures to protect their students. After the break, a judge in Trump's classified documents case dismisses a motion to keep certain documents hidden. 
What's the extent of President Biden's involvement in his son's business dealings and when it comes to foreign cash flow? The House Oversight Committee continues to investigate, today releasing new evidence. Melina Weiskup on Capitol Hill. A former U.S. diplomat is charged with spying. We'll tell you more about what the Justice Department is calling one of the highest reaching and longest lasting infiltrations of the U.S. government. Even though George Santos may no longer be in Congress, he's not fading from the public eye. Find out what he's now selling to make some money after the break. Welcome back. New evidence revealing President Biden's involvement in Hunter Biden's foreign business deals. A bank record showing an account with former Vice President Biden's name on it was set up to receive monthly payments. Entity's Melina Wisecup has the story. The key here is that this money was not coming from Hunter Biden's personal account, but instead from his business account, one of those businesses by the name of Owasco PC. Now, these records indicate that President Biden, when he was then the former vice president, signed to receive over $1,300 from this Owasco PC bank account, and he signed to receive that on a monthly basis. Aides on that oversight committee say they have evidence of at least three instances where that money was actually transferred to President Biden. Now, it's important to keep in mind that Hunter Biden right now is under investigation for for using this entity, Owasco PC, to actually evade taxes. And another interesting point that's key here about this company is that this is one of the companies he used to receive millions of dollars from all over the world, including from Ukrainian energy company Burisma, as well as at least $1 million from a Chinese businessman by the name of Patrick Ho, who's since been sentenced for bribery and money laundering. Here's what the chairman of the Oversight Committee, James Comer, had to say when he Release these records. This wasn't a payment from Hunter Biden's personal account, but an account for his corporation that received payments from China and other shady corners of the world. Now, remember, up until this point, the Oversight Committee has not been able to directly link President Biden to these foreign business deals of his son, Hunter Biden. So this is the first such record to indicate that. Now the House is gearing up to have a full floor vote on the impeachment inquiry into President Biden. That vote could take place as early as next week. Meanwhile, the White House is trying to brush off these allegations by claiming that this is only an effort on the part of Speaker Mike Johnson to, quote, throw red meat at the far right flank of the Republican Party by trying to hold this impeachment inquiry vote. Now, as for an update on another impeachment effort on the part of House Republicans, well, they're moving forward with their effort to try to impeach DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Now, the chairman of the Homeland Security Committee, Mark Green, he's taking the lead on this, and he told me just recently they're planning to hold this full floor vote on the House floor by the end of this year. But now that pressure for Mark Green is on even more so after Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Green held two previous attempts to try to force a vote through a privileged motion to get him impeached. Although her last attempt to do so, she withdrew after she said she got assurances from leadership that they would soon be holding this vote to impeach the DHS secretary. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. The judge in former President Trump's classified documents case has rejected a motion by prosecutors to keep some documents from the defense hidden. Judge Eileen Cannon signed an order yesterday to have three documents unsealed. Special Counsel Jack Smith previously sought to keep them concealed, but one of the documents from December 1st shows Smith's team agreed and insisted on some redactions. Trump says he used his presidential powers to declassify materials kept at his Mar-a-Lago home. 
The 2024 presidential candidate maintains his innocence and says the case is an attempt to interfere with his run. A former U.S. diplomat is charged with spying for Cuba. 73-year-old Manuel Rocha served as ambassador to Bolivia from 2000 to 2002. He was arrested Friday in Miami and arraigned in federal court yesterday. Here's the story. The former U.S. ambassador to Bolivia, Victor Manuel Rocha, was charged on Monday with spying for Cuba for more than 40 years in what the U.S. Justice Department described as one of the highest-reaching and longest-lasting infiltrations of the U.S. government by a foreign agent. As detailed in the complaint, Rocha repeatedly referred to the United States as, quote, the enemy. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland said the former diplomat used his many positions within the government over the years to support Cuba's clandestine intelligence gathering mission against the United States. To betray that trust by falsely pledging loyalty to the United States while serving a foreign power is a crime that will be met with the full force of the Justice Department. According to the DOJ, Rocha, who served as U.S. Ambassador to Bolivia from 2000 to 2002 and held a number of high-profile diplomatic positions at the State Department, was charged with committing multiple federal crimes, including acting as an illegal foreign agent and using a fraudulently obtained passport. He sought out and obtained positions, according to Garland, that would provide him with access to non-public information and the ability to affect U.S. foreign policy. U.S. State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller said the government was still assessing the damage from Rocha's infiltration. We will, in the coming days, weeks, months, work with our partners in the intelligence community to assess any long-term uh, uh, national security implications for this matter. Rocha's wife and lawyer were filmed outside a Miami courthouse Monday, where the 73-year-old was set to appear before a federal judge after being arrested. George Santos may be out of Congress, but he's not out of the public eye. He's joined the cele celebrity video service Cameo, and one of his first customers is a senator. Mr. Santos, you're Booted out of Congress, George Santos is rebooting, now joining Cameo, the celebrity video message platform. Don't let the haters get to you. Engaging in everything from birthday to holiday greetings and pep talks on Cameo, the platform's co-founder says Santos raised his price on Cameo today from $75 to $200 due to the demand. Demand from even inside the Capitol, with Senator John Fetterman buying a Santos Cameo clip to tweak Senator Bob Menendez, who, like Santos, is also under federal indictment. You stand your ground, sir, and don't get bogged down by all the haters out there. But Santos also has to contend with a federal trial next year on 23 charges, ranging from identity theft to wire fraud to using donor money for Botox. He's pleaded not guilty. After the break, the Supreme Court is getting involved with pharmaceutical giant Purdue Pharma over the legality of its bankruptcy settlement. Hawaiian Airlines shares tripled yesterday after their announced merger with Alaskan Airlines. We look at the chances of the deal going through with the host of Entity Business.
Good morning and welcome back. We have Entity Business host Don Ma with us now to discuss the Supreme Court case involving pharmaceutical company Purdue Pharma. Justices struggled over whether to allow Purdue's bankruptcy settlement to go through. Don, tell us about the case. Yeah, sure. Uh, so a bit of background information here. So Purdue Pharma is the uh, pharmaceutical company that uh, gained prominence as the maker of the painkiller uh, called Oxycontin. And then in 2019, Purdue filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy to address its debts. And a lot of these debts was due to thousands of lawsuits. Um, these lawsuits allege that the addictiveness of Oxycontin helped fuel an opioid epidemic. And by the way, which has caused uh, more than half a million U.S. overdose deaths. Um, and, and many of the lawsuits allege that the Sackler family knew the addictiveness of Oxycontin, but continued to promote this drug. And of, of course, the Sackler family is the owner of the pharmaceutical company. Um, but in, in 2021, a US, U.S. bankruptcy court uh, approved their uh, restructuring plan. Uh, so, you know, in, in this plan, the Sackler family uh, will pay around $6 billion uh, in settlement. Uh, and then they'll be protected from being sued in the future. Uh, they'll pr be protected from lawsuits related to the opioid crisis. And that's including lawsuits by states, hospitals. And of course, uh, it's going to be by lawsuits uh, from people who are actually addicted to the drug. So the court uh, heard arguments in, in an appeal by the Biden ad administration um, of the bankruptcy protection. And the justices uh, seemed conflicted yesterday of whether to allow Purdue Pharma's bankruptcy reorganization to go through. Uh, which means, of course, that the family would be protected. That was the core of the issue yesterday. I mean, there was a lot of outrage over the Sackler family. So why was it so hard for the justices to come to a decision? Well, it's no ordinary bankruptcy case here. Uh, of course, the, the case touches on the sensitive topic of the opioid crisis. But just as important is whether bankruptcy courts themselves have become too powerful. Uh, and I, as I mentioned earlier, the core of the issue is whether the Sackler family should be protected from these uh, lawsuits from people who are addicted to their drug. Uh, I mean, the, the this U.S. government asked the Supreme Court to actually block this bankruptcy plan, uh, this settlement. But, you know, whatever the court decides is going to have an impact uh, in the future. Uh, if the justices uh, decide the bankruptcy plan can't be used to protect the family, it could mean a longer litigation in the future over bankruptcy plans and slower distribution uh, to creditors. And blocking the bankruptcy plan could potentially leave many victims of the opioid crisis empty-handed. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this case, it, it's, it's difficult what, no matter what you do. Yeah, and thanks for the update on those details. And a lot of it centers on how Purdue Pharma was aggressively marketing that painkiller OxyContin. And then that came under scrutiny because so many thousands of people died in recent years due to overdoses. But I want to switch topics here. How is that Hawaiian airline deal coming along? Yeah, as we uh, pointed out yesterday, um, but it seems like Shares of Hawaiian Holdings, uh, which is the parent of Hawaiian Airlines, nearly tripled yesterday after Alaska Air uh, Group agreed to acquire it for $1.9 billion. The deal comes after Hawaiian shares lost more than half their value 
This year, due to the impact of the Maui fires, uh, high fuel costs and jet engine recall issues uh, for some of its planes. And Alaska and Hawaiians said that the deal will expand their networks and offer more choices to passengers. I mean, we'll see what happens. Yeah, maybe it'll give them a chance to recoup some of their losses from those wildfires. Hopefully. Yeah. yeah. Dan Ma, host of Entity Business. Thank you. Thank you. And you might be familiar with New York Neapolitan Detroit or Chicago style pizza, but there's another trending pizza. We have the tasty story right after the break. Good to have you back. And what is your favorite kind of pizza? You might be familiar with New York Neapolitan Detroit or Chicago style pizza. I don't know. I think I like the deep dish a lot. Oh, okay. I know it's a big favorite. Mine is the homemade pizza. You roll out <laughs> the dough and then you get the tomato base with the Italian seasoning. You can also make a portobello mushroom as the actual crust. Mm, yeah, I see. It's pretty cool. But there's another kind of pizza and it's gaining popularity in California, Sicilian. Entity's Helen Billings has more on this tasty story. Sicilian pizza. It's a square style pan pizza with a thick focaccia-like crust. It's crunchy on the bottom and soft and pillowy in the middle. We talked with JP Piccolo from Walnut Creek, California, who has been making pizza at his family restaurant Mello's since he was 16 years old. At 19, he went to cooking school in Italy and about five years ago, he noticed Sicilian pizza gaining in popularity. I'm uh, like a major pizza nerd and I follow uh, you know, hundreds of different restaurants. Then when COVID hit while at home, he crafted his own Sicilian pizza recipe and it starts with the dough. Uh, 12 hours uh, for the pre-ferment and then 24 hours in bulk and another 24 hours in ball form. So we're at uh, 60 plus hours of fermentation time. So it's like a nice, flavorful, well-fermented dough. His most popular pizza is called the Luca, named after his son which is topped with pepperoni, mozzarella, burrata cheese, and hot honey. We also talked to Vinny Sabaro, the owner of Vinny's Pizzeria in Martinez, California. His mom is from Sicily and his grandfather started the chain Sabaro in the malls across America. He started making pizza when he was just a little boy in Brooklyn. In pizza industry in New York, it goes back many years. But I would like to say that my family was one of the ones that kind of came up with pizza by the slice in the malls. That was the model. Finney, who's already been making Sicilian pizza for 20 years, also noticed a gain in popularity. It's a different style, but yet you could still use a lot of the same type of dough that you use for regular New York style. It's just prepared a different way as far as the way you proof the dough and um, how you cook it in the oven. Finney said one of the most important ingredients is the cheese, and California tomatoes make the best sauce. Mmm, now I'm hungry. <laughs> NTD News, Helen Billings, California. She's not the only one hungry now. Yeah. Looks delicious. Well, you know, there's this place, Pequod's, it serves up Chicago deep dish pizza, and they have the caramelized crust. Oh, really ooh, that sounds so good. But the Luca, was it called? That looked really good, too, with the honey on top. I mean, I have a sweet tooth, but honey on pizza? That's that's a bit far out there for no, me. No, that's good. You should try it. You really should try it. Maybe we'll win you over with that one. <laughs> All right, uh, we will head to a one-minute break, and then we'll be right back, so stay with us. 
there are real consequences to controlled media. And NTD's founders know them firsthand. Our freedom of thought is the price. This is the lesson that guides us in everything we do. So there's the tear gas there. We know the value of a free society. And we take seriously the responsibility to preserve it. We are NTD. Good morning, welcome to NTD. Good morning, here are top stories. U.S. officials and lawmakers are urging Israel to step up its efforts to minimize civilian deaths in Gaza. The State Department sets its stance as pressure from Congress grows. Horrific accounts of sexual violence carried out by Hamas revealed in a new report. Here eyewitness accounts from yesterday's hearing at UN headquarters. What are the underlying causes of conflict in the Middle East? What motivates terrorists to commit such heinous acts? A veteran Middle East reporter and filmmaker gives us some answers. Support for Israel and Ukraine hangs in the balance as lawmakers squabble about an aid package for the country's worth over $100 billion. And New Century hosted its second annual Christmas market and Winter Wonderland Festival with families gathering for a night of food and celebration. An unexpected guest made a smashing entrance at a New Jersey elementary school. Stay tuned to see how police officers fare against the dashing intruder. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Good morning and welcome. Today is Tuesday, December 5th. We're starting with the latest updates on the Israel-Hamas war. This morning, top UN officials are warning of an apocalyptic situation in Gaza and saying there is no safe place for civilians to go. The U.S. says while it supports Israel in its war against Hamas, how it defends itself matters. The U.S. State Department said yesterday it's watching Israel's southern offensive closely and has seen improvement. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the concerns and Israel's response. State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller said Monday it's not just Israel's intent that matters, it's results. And we are watching very closely and we'll continue to watch very closely before we draw any definitive assessments. Miller says so far Israel's military campaign in southern Gaza looks different than its operations carried out in the north. He says some improvements are targeted evacuations in specific neighborhoods, with UN-supported deconfliction zones where civilians can safely shelter. We do not want to see the same level of civilian casualties. We do not want to see the same level of mass displacement. But Miller says the U.S. does expect to see civilian casualties in Israel's campaign, and that sadly it's part of all wars. It is especially going to be true in a war in a crowded urban environment where the opponent, Hamas, 
is using civilians as human shields and hiding themselves, hiding their fighters, hiding their infrastructure behind civilians. So what we have made clear to Israel is that we expect them to comply with international humanitarian law and do, them, do everything they can to minimize civilian harm. Israel's military confirmed a recent report that two Palestinian civilians have been killed for every one Hamas terrorist during the war. I think that our numbers will um, be corroborated if you compare though that ratio to any other conflict in urban terrain between a military and a terrorist organization using civilians as their human shield and embedded in the civilian population, you will find that that ratio is tremendous, tremendously positive. IDF spokesman Daniel Hagari on Monday declared Israel's military was expanding ground operations everywhere in the Gaza Strip to target Hamas centers of gravity. The military spokesman says fighter jets were carrying out significant and very precise strikes based on intelligence. Part of several operations, Hagari says, were executed by combined ground and air forces to eliminate terrorists and their infrastructures. Ground forces are operating in the field. The terrorists come out from the shafts, from the tunnels. The air force forces attack and thus continue to advance with strength assisting strength. Hagari is demanding international organizations like the Red Cross verify the safety of the 137 hostages still being held by Hamas. Eight released Israeli hostages wrote a letter to the International Red Cross on Monday asking for help in securing their release. They asked the organization to visit the captives to provide urgent health status, medical assistance and proof of life. The IDF says it does have intelligence on where hostages are possibly being held and that it's a top priority to get all of them back, either through negotiations or military means. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. A new report reveals horrific stories of rape and sexual violence during the Hamas terror attacks on October 7th. The UN headquarters in New York held a special session yesterday where witnesses exposed brutal acts against Israeli women. A warning to viewers, many of the descriptions describe gruesome acts and the accounts are very disturbing. Here's the report. On October 7th, Hamas perpetrated rape and sexual violence, exploiting these unforgivable crimes as weapons of war. Nearly two months after the October 7th attacks, the international community is finally beginning to investigate and recognize reports of brutal and inhumane rapes and sexual assaults by Hamas terrorists, torturing and terrorizing the people of Israel. The United Nations held a gathering hosted by Israel examining sexual and gender-based violence committed during Hamas's attack on Israel. Hamas has denied committing any rapes or sexual assaults. The chief superintendent of the Israeli police read numerous accounts of the atrocities witnessed by survivors and first responders. Everything was an apocalypse of corpses. Girls without any clothes on, without tops, without underwear. People cut in half, butchered, some were beheaded. There were girls with a broken pelvis due to repetitive rapes. Their legs were spread wide apart in a split. A witness from the rave party testified, we heard girls that were pulled out from the shelters, girls that shouted, they raped girls, burned them just after that. All the bodies outside were burned. And videos were played from a first responder, a paramedic, 
and a survivor of the music festival, detailing firsthand what they experienced. The two we had were bound by their hands. Their hands were behind their back. There was a body of a woman that had a blood stain on her genitalia. There was a lot of gun wounds there. Shooting was targeted at sexual organs. We saw that a lot. They had a thing with sexual organs, both in women and in men. The women we received, they were civilian. We mainly saw either breast amputations or gunshots just to the breast, simply shooting from one side of the breast to the other. They were conscious when they got to us. Do we believe the Hamas spokesperson who said that rape is forbidden, therefore it couldn't have possibly happened on October 7th? Or do we believe the women whose bodies tell us how they spent the last minutes of their lives? Who are we going to believe? The United Nations doesn't recognize Hamas as a terrorist organization, and the speakers are calling for the UN to do so. The UN also hasn't recognized the sexual violence committed by Hamas on October 7th. The speakers are calling for the United States to acknowledge that as well. Really just runs chills down my spine. It's incredible that we have heard so little thus far. Yeah, well, and now it's really good that they're able to come forward and give their firsthand accounts. And of course, it's really something difficult to absorb in the morning, but it's really important to be aware of. Yes, it's something that happened, and it's important to know this. And that brings us to the next story. What motivates terrorists to commit acts of terror? A French-Israeli journalist has interviewed dozens of terrorists from Islamic groups. He has some insight into what motivates terrorists and the underlying reasons for conflict in the Middle East. Let's take a look. The crisis in the Middle East is one that spans decades, even centuries. The Israel-Hamas conflict being just the latest one. What does Hamas want out of the conflict with Israel? I must add that we don't only fight against occupation. Our goal is to spread Islam to all, everywhere. What do terrorist groups say Islam teaches them to motivate them to commit acts of terrorism? It's written in the Quran. When a martyr blows himself up, it's beautiful. It feels so good. He doesn't feel any pain, only pleasure. And even dead, he wants to do it again and again. Pierre Rehav is a reporter and documentary filmmaker. He's covered conflicts in the Middle East for decades. He's interviewed dozens of Hamas, Islamic Jihad, and Al-Qaeda terrorists. Rehav talks about who is funding Islamic terrorist propaganda around the world. Is it Iran, Russia, China? It's all of you ago, and you forgot the most important, Qatar. Qatar also is involved. Qatar, Russia, China. Very good point. But more also, you have to understand, European Union, they send millions of dollars to left-wing organizations within Israel or within the Palestinian territories. Rahaf pulls no punches when talking about the future of terrorism. We will not be able to stop terrorism until the moment people actually call the things for what they are. If you're looking at, if you're reading the newspapers and if you're watching a lot of mainstream media, they don't even dare calling Hamas a terror organization. The complex political and religious divide in the Middle East is long-standing. 
Rahaf says it's necessary to find a global government for Palestinians that is capable of accepting the existence of Israel and making peace with them. Yeah, and they're all complete and total lies being fed to those aspiring terrorists. As the Quran forbids suicide, like the case of these suicide bombings, and also it forbids killing others. Hmm. I mean, that's a very interesting point, right? They are making death holy for themselves. So, um, well, thanks for adding that. And we're heading to a break. So coming up, some Democrat lawmakers won't support an aid bill for Israel unless the army takes greater precautions to prevent civilian deaths in Gaza. And presidents of Harvard, UPenn, and MIT are set to appear before a House committee today for a grilling on their response to surging campus anti-Semitism. Find out what the committee chair's first question is going to be. New Century hosted its second annual Christmas market and Winter Wonderland Festival. We take a look at the night of celebration coming up. Good to have you back. Some Democratic lawmakers are balking at supporting military aid to Israel. They're demanding Israel reduce civilian deaths in Gaza. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the talks, which center around a nearly $106 billion aid package for Ukraine and Israel. Senator Bernie Sanders and the Democratic senators involved want a change in Israel's military strategy as part of receiving the aid. Sanders says he would support defense systems that protect Israeli citizens from incoming missiles and rocket attacks, but not billions of dollars of what he sees as unconditional military aid. He doesn't support the Netanyahu government continuing what he calls its current offensive military strategy. Israel is at war with Hamas, not with the Palestinian people. Israel cannot bomb an entire neighborhood just to take out one Hamas lieutenant. However, Sanders does acknowledge the challenges Israel faces, saying he recognized that the goal of Hamas is perpetual warfare until Israel is destroyed. Other Democrats, like Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, say passing the bill could determine the trajectory of democracy for years to come adding that the U.S. stands at a historical crossroads. America's national security is on the line around the world, in Europe, in the Middle East, in the Indo-Pacific. Autocrats, dictators are waging war against democracy, against our values, against our way of life. That's why passing this supplemental is so important. Schumer took a procedural step on the Senate floor Monday evening to force a Wednesday vote on the aid bill. But it is unlikely to pass. Meanwhile, some Republican senators are also ready to vote against the Israel-Ukraine aid bill, unless it includes major changes in policy at the U.S. border. Senator Joni Ernst from Iowa says she wants more funding for Ukraine, but not without substantial changes to border policy. Senators will hear a final pitch from an aid beneficiary before voting. Senator Schumer wrote on X on Monday that the Biden administration invited Ukrainian President Zelensky to address senators via secure video as part of their classified briefing. 
Schumer wrote that senators will be able to hear directly from the Ukrainian president precisely what's at stake in the vote. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Three university presidents will face scrutiny about campus anti-Semitism in a House hearing today. The leaders of Harvard, MIT and UPenn are likely to be grilled on their response to a surge of anti-Semitism. House Education Committee Chair Virginia Fox says she's looking to hold the campus leaders accountable. Fox accuses the administrators of largely standing by and in her words allowing horrific rhetoric to fester and grow. Fox says her first question to the school's presidents will be when they're going to get a spine. The congresswoman says she wants to know when they will start condemning terrorism and take measures to protect their students. And switching gears, a recent report by House Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan found that the federal government and disinformation experts at universities and big tech work to monitor and censor speech leading up to the 2020 election. And today asked a college professor and fellow at Campus Reform to weigh in on Jordan's findings. Here's his response. But all these programs combined tell a bigger story, and it goes to the idea of what Jen Easterly, who is the director of CISA in the Department of Homeland Security, stated, that in order to control our national security and protect us, the government's got to be able to control what she deems as cognitive infrastructure. Cognitive is the way we believe, our thoughts and our opinions, and government wants to shape and mold them to push whatever their narrative is. The fact is, American taxpayer dollars, we shouldn't be paying to have our own voices censored. We should be able to see all information and then come to our own conclusions, determining whether it's misinformation or disinformation. The professor says it's an example of the federal government trying to bypass the Constitution. He says it goes beyond the censorship aspect because higher education is used to determine what people can say. The professor called it the largest social engineering program ever witnessed in history. He advises parents to be vigilant about what's happening on campuses. He suggests checking to ensure they provide students with the education and skills they need to compete in today's environment. And four candidates have qualified for the fourth GOP presidential primary debate set for tomorrow night. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie will face off. Tune in tomorrow at 10 p.m. for exclusive post-debate coverage on NTD News. Gain insights, analysis, and a comprehensive review of the debate. Don't miss out on the in-depth perspectives. But who's getting excited about Christmas? I know I am. Yeah, me too. Uh, because New Century Event Center is celebrating the holidays with a Christmas market and winter wonderland in Deer Park, New York. The event last weekend showcased a variety of holiday products and food for the local community. Three, two, one. The dazzling Christmas tree was lit as this year marked the second annual Christmas Market in Winter Wonderland event hosted by New Century. The Northern Schoolhouse Chorus performed Christmas songs for the audience. The Christmas spirit and the Christmas holiday is really about giving. It's a time of giving. It's a time of thinking about others uh, in need, thinking about families, thinking about all your friends, thinking about the beautiful local community that we're a part of. So we wanted to do this event so that people could come here and feel that spirit and feel that appreciation we have for them. 
and also just for the, the love that we have for Christmas. Public officials were present and expressed their appreciation for the activities that enrich community culture. Uh, just uh, come on out and visit. You have another weekend coming up. You're going to do this on the 9th also? Or? I think it's good. I think it's, it's introducing a lot of people to a new culture. And um, I think that, that everyone's getting to know their neighbors. And um, there's some great exhibitors here too, you know, selling some products and uh, some good food over there too. The reindeer and Christmas sleigh attracted festival goers with tons of opportunities for photos. There were also lights showcasing the principles of Falun Gong, also known as Falun Dafa, an ancient Chinese meditation practice. These three words are very meaningful because the world needs truthfulness, compassion, forbearance. We also put lotus flowers because they represent innocence and kindness. The Christmas market and light show will return on Saturday, December 9th from 3 to 8 p.m. Merry Christmas! And a New Jersey elementary school had an unexpected visitor over the Thanksgiving holiday weekend. A deer that jumped through a window and ran around the school. A man walking his dog saw the young deer jump and smash through a window in an elementary school in Tom's River. Police found the young deer running amok, but were able to lead it to safety. The deer noses its way into a room, runs across a long desk, and bumps into what looks like hanging artwork as the officer follows. School staff boarded up the window and cleaned up after the deer's frenzied escape. Yeah, poor thing. is look. It looks so scared. She's trying to get out. Well, you know, deer actually go into rut during that mating season near late November, and they can just get really aggressive at that time. Oh, the males really? Can. Yeah. Oh, well, then glad nobody got hurt. Yeah, you got to be careful. Deer, they're pretty strong animals. Oh, yeah, for sure. All right, we have to wrap up our show now, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information. Stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.